from Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. We begin this episode of Land Stories with a correction. In the episode that discussed the creation of Lansing Community College's downtown campus and the construction of Dart Auditorium, I had mentioned that there was a house on Lansing Community College's campus called the Turner House and that it had been demolished in the close proximity of time in which Dart Auditorium was built, which is around 1980. But that was incorrect, and I want to thank my colleague Rob Edwards for pointing out my error. The building that is in question, the Turner House, actually stood for quite a bit longer than that. It was not torn down until sometime in the early part of the first decade of this century. So that would be the early 2000s. And again, thank you very much, Rob, for correcting me on my error. And if any of you ever have... A correction, question, comment, concern, feel free to get a hold of me. My contact details are on the webpage, lccconnect.org, where you can find the past episodes of this program, plus all of the others that we produce here as part of the LCC Connect series. The idea of memory, therefore, and why some people remember one thing one way, remember one thing the other, or why certain people think they know something about a historical event, a historical person, a historical phenomenon, and when it turns out, well, actually, this story is a little bit different than what they initially thought. That is the theme of this episode of Land Stories. And to begin that exploration of that idea, we are going to take another little stroll around downtown Lansing. For those of you that have listened to past episodes, you know that we like to take strolls around Lansing on this program, and we are going to do that. Our stroll today is going to take us not very far from Lansing Community College's campus. We're going to walk just a couple blocks to the south down Capitol Avenue, and we're going to stand in front of the beautiful Michigan Capitol Building we're going to walk up the sidewalk that takes us to the main entrance of the building, but we're not going to go into that building. We're going to stop. We're going to stop because we are going to encounter a statue. A statue of a man by the name of Austin Blair. There are many monuments and statues on the Capitol lawn, but actually there's only one that is of an actual person, meaning... The other statues or monuments are representative of certain events, uh, groups of people. Many of them are war monuments, actually. Many of them are Civil War-era monuments. And in fact, the state capitol building itself is, in many ways, a gigantic monument, a living monument, a working monument to Michigan's contribution to the Union during the Civil War. And it is that war, the Civil War, that brings us to the man that we're looking at on top of a pedestal. That man is 
Austin Blair. And Austin Blair has the distinction of being the only person with a statue honoring him on the Michigan Capitol lawn for a very good reason. And that reason is indeed because of his contributions to the preservation of the Union during the Civil War. But our look at Austin Blair gives us an opportunity, therefore, to also consider the concept of historical memory, to look at why certain things are remembered or forgotten in the way they are. And I didn't realize it at the time, but as it turns out, somewhere deep in the caverns of my mind's filing system, I believe the inspiration for this episode came many years ago. It is probably not going to surprise any of you out there if I told you that I saw something on social media, and that sparked an idea in my mind. Here's what I saw on social media. I saw Confederate flags in the back of people's pickup trucks who were parked at or about Austin Blair Park in Jackson. And this was several years ago, and it was a rally that took place Round about the time, actually, of the summer that, not too far from there, many years earlier, the Republican Party was founded. And Austin Blair had a role to play in the Republican Party. I'm going to discuss that in a moment. It was a very important role. He's actually one of the founders of the Republican Party. And, as I will also discuss momentarily, that party had its founding at a meeting in Jackson, Michigan, on the 6th of July in 1854. So, why then would a park bearing the name of one of the people who truly did keep the United States together during that terrible civil war that killed hundreds of thousands of Americans, a war that, in Austin Blair's own words, was fought over what he called the vilest crime in existence, slavery, have a rally. In the 21st century of people bearing a banner that, while not the state banner of the Confederacy, nonetheless has, through the years, come to define in popular culture nowadays the side that, well, lost the Civil War and, indeed, tried to break the Union apart. That brings to mind historical memory. And historical memory is something that, on the sounds of it, it sounds like, what the heck is he talking about, historical memory? How can somebody remember something historically if he or she did not live through that event? Ah, that is the distinction, really, of what we mean by historical memory compared to memory. So, I have memory. You have memory. I have memory of being in Jackson, Michigan. I've been there many times, actually. Uh, having grown up in the southern part of Michigan, Jackson was not that far of a drive from where I grew up, over by Kalamazoo. And so I've been there many times, and I've even been to the park that the meeting of the Republican Party was held in 1854 that I referenced only moments ago. And I had that memory, because I've been there before. But... I also have, in my mind, what one might call the collective memory of a nation. And the collective memory of the American nation is something that 
we inherit through our schools, through our parents, our grandparents, our older siblings, our aunts and uncles, our cousins, our best friends, our work colleagues, the news media that we consume, the podcasts we listen to, the radio programs that we enjoy. Through all of those transmissions of knowledge, we end up forming an idea of the past. Whether we realize it or not, most of that programming, most of that information that we receive has a historical component to it. If you take the word history out of it, it actually seems quite obvious. For example, how do you know if you haven't filled your car up with gasoline in a few weeks that the price of gas is four and a half or five dollars a gallon? Well, because probably somebody told you, or you drove down the road and you saw the sign outside of a gas station that read 479 or 489 or 529, depending on how recently you filled up. And that's information that's transmitted to you. You drive by that same gas station six months from now, and maybe gas is $6.99 a gallon. Maybe it's $2.99 a gallon. And you remember back to six months prior when it was $4.89 a gallon. And you have a memory of what happened. And you can talk to other people about it, and you can all sit around and chat about the price of gas, where it's been, where it's going, and you are engaging in an episode of historical memory. Now think about issues that come and go, but also think about events that happen to a nation that exist over an extended period of time and develop over extended periods of time to the point where the collective body politic experiences those events. And everybody experiences them differently because all of us have our own perception of the events going on around us, but there's enough sharing of knowledge that as we experience these events together and they become part of our culture, they become part of our mindset, we develop a concept of nationhood. We identify with certain themes, with certain ideas, with certain people, and as the nation develops historically, over time, we pass these ideas on to all the relationships that I mentioned only moments ago. So this all, indeed, is a bit of an endeavor into postmodern historical theory, which is something that was quite prominent in the 1960s and 70s especially. But we won't go too far down that road. Not on this episode, maybe in a later date. For now... I want us to think about that idea of historical memory, and in doing so, let's get back for just a moment to the Confederate flags flying high there at Austin Blair Park in Jackson, Michigan, a few years ago. How do we get to the point where a park that is named in honor of one of the men who, well, worked hard, as an understatement, to preserve the Union. Actually, he staked his entire political career on it. We're going to talk about that here momentarily. And indeed, lived through an event that killed hundreds of thousands of people. 
It is absolutely impossible, really, to adequately uh, explain, I think, now the really what the Civil War meant to the people that lived through it and, of course, the people that didn't survive through it. The best description I think I can have you read is from an absolutely outstanding book that was published a few years ago by a historian. Her name is Drew Gilpin Faust, and the book is called This Republic of Suffering. And if any of you have ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, it has often been remarked that the opening scene of that movie is one of the more accurate uh, depictions on film of what it was like to be part of that operation during the Second World War. It's a very riveting piece of film, and quite frankly, it's, it's difficult to watch, actually, when you try to put your mind uh, into the people who actually lived through that event, and many of us myself included, certainly know people that are new, unfortunately now many of them have passed away, but new people that, that did indeed live through that event. The first chapter of the book, This Republic of Suffering, is very much a literary accomplishment of a similar magnitude in terms of really getting to the heart of what the Civil War was like in the sheer violence and horror of those who lived through it. So how do we get then to the early part of the 2010s and all of that horror, all of that destruction that was the attempt at dismantling the United States, how do we get to the point where people probably with little if any knowledge of what the Confederate flag, as we call it nowadays, actually stood for. How do we get to the point where they're flying that on a park named after the governor of Michigan, one of the founders of the Republican Party, whose raison d'etat during the time was to preserve the Union and prevent the very cause that that flag stood for from destroying that Union? We're going to get to as far as we can uh, in answering that question. And I want to keep this in mind as we're, we're exploring the idea of memory. So let's span the decades. We're actually going to span the centuries now. And let's go back to the beginning of Austin Blair's life. And it starts not far actually from a place in New York that made its appearance on Land Stories just a few episodes ago. Uh, for those of you who are faithful listeners to this program, you will remember a few episodes ago we discussed who Lansing's named after. And Lansing, as it turns out, is named after a gentleman by the name of John Lansing Jr. because Lansing, Michigan, is named after Lansing, New York, which is named after John Lansing Jr. And go back and listen to that episode of Land Stories, and you will be fascinated to learn all of the connections that Michigan has with the state of New York in the 19th century. And as it turns out, Austin Blair is another one. He 
is another individual that we can trace back to the state of New York. Blair was born in Caroline, New York. Caroline is a tiny little town along the way to Ithaca, and it's only about 20 miles actually from Lansing, New York. So we're in upstate New York, as the region's called now, not far from the Finger Lakes region, and in 1818, on the 18th of February, actually, Austin Blair was born in Caroline, New York. He grew up in New York, studied law, was admitted to the New York bar, and then, like many people from New York, he ended up moving to Michigan. Michigan was one of the most sought-after places to move in the United States in the 1830s, the 1840s, and there are a lot of reasons for that. We had lots of good agricultural land here. Michigan was deemed to have a very favorable climate compared to other parts of the country at the time. And, of course, Michigan had a very ample supply of water. The very same reasons why, in the year 2022, people still find Michigan to be a very useful place to live. So Austin Blair moves here in 1841. And in 1841, he enters politics. He first is elected as the clerk of Eaton County. And then he ends up moving to Jackson. And from there, he gets elected to the State House in 1845. In 1848, he is a delegate to the Free Soil National Convention in Buffalo. And the Free Soil National Convention was called so because this was the Free Soil Party. And we're going to have to take a little bit of a turn away from the biography of Austin Blair to look at the politics he was becoming a very important part of at the time. And that political movement that the Free Soil Party and others that popped up beginning in the 1840s, and especially in the 1850s, was part of the political realignment that the United States was undergoing at the time. The Free Soil Party, as its name would suggest, was a party that was formed over opposing the expansion of slavery. Free Soil referring to the idea that as the United States expanded territorially westward, those territories would be free of slavery when they became states uh, admitted to the Union. And the Free Soil Party really formed um, as a result of the Mexican-American War. All of the issues that propped up during and after that war uh, involving the territory expansion of the United States, slavery being a huge one, and ultimately the inability of the Whig Party to remain united over whether or not they would oppose slavery's expansion or would agree to what was known as popular sovereignty at the time, which was the idea that people that were moving into the new territories would be able to decide uh, through elections whether or not slavery would be allowed to expand or not. The Free Soil Party didn't last very long, and ultimately, many of those, like Blair, who were involved in the early formation of the Free Soil Party, ended up forming the Republican Party. 
And we'll turn our story now back to Austin Blair because it is really that moment that he is going to become very prominent, not only in Michigan politics, but national politics. So Blair is elected to the Michigan State Senate in 1854, and that same year, on the 6th of July of 1854, what I mentioned here a few moments ago, the first Republican Party convention takes place. Convention eh, may be a little bit of a stretch of the word. It was a meeting held in Jackson, Jackson, Michigan, where Blair was living at the time. And that meeting consisted of men such as Blair, where they formed a party that would formally take a stand opposing the expansion of slavery, but also, and a lot of people forget this about the Republican Party, would tie in their opposition to the expansion of slavery with what was at the time deemed a very uh, progressive, and some might even say activist, economic policy in regards to the role that the government would play in what they believed was fostering economic growth. So the Republican Party is definitely a party that is founded over the issue of slavery. It is very, very, very important, though, to note that the Republican Party's official stance was anti-slavery. It was not abolition. And that is not a technicality of word usage. The two were very different. Those that were abolitionists, as the name suggests, wanted to abolish slavery immediately and permanently, wherever it existed, and they wanted to do so by, well, in some cases, to quote a much later American historical figure, any means necessary. The anti-slavery stance, which is actually what the majority of the people that were opposed to the expansion of slavery believed in, was actually as much an economic argument as it was a moral argument. Anti-slavery folks believed that slavery was an economically backward system. Many anti-slavery people also agreed with the abolitionists that it was a morally corrupt system. And being a combination of the two, anti-slavery people believed that the growth and progress and prosperity of the United States would forever be slowed by the existence of slavery. But they also recognized that much of the American economy was dependent upon slavery, both South and North. And they also recognized that the union of the American states would absolutely be threatened should slavery be abolished immediately or it proposed to be abolished immediately because many of the folks who were in politics at the time, of course, many of the prominent businessmen in America, they owned slaves. So the anti-slavery folks had the stance that if slavery were prevented from expanding further, it would die a natural death, and in doing so, would allow the United States to rid itself of this economically backward and morally corrupt institution, and thereby, in 
the minds of the anti-slavery folks, this was a way that the U.S. could accomplish the end of slavery without tearing the nation apart. Now, as it turns out, though, the anti-slavery stance was deemed by many Americans, North and South, to be an extremist stance. I think it goes without saying that Southerners who were slave owners would believe that, but it may be surprising to hear that there were a fair amount of Northerners, too, who believed that the anti-slavery stance was too radical. And a lot of those folks instead adopted the idea that Lewis Cass, for example, a prominent Michigander from this era, professed, and that was the idea of popular sovereignty, which I mentioned a moment ago. The idea that as the nation expanded, the issue of slavery could be resolved by having the people who moved into the newly acquired territories decide for themselves through election whether or not slavery would exist. And that turned out to be viewed as the ultimate compromise position. Now, ultimately, though, the politics of the United States became polarized greatly over the issue of slavery. No uh, single stance was deemed to be sufficiently acceptable to all regions of the United States. Those who were abolitionists believed that it was a moral wrong and slavery had to be done away with immediately. They were a minority, but they were a very powerful minority in some parts of the country. The anti-slavery folks, men like Austin Blair, who eventually formed into the Republican Party, believed that the economic backwardness of slavery, combined with its moral corruption, deemed it to be an institution that needed to be done away with, but in a manner which did not harm the Union. And then the popular sovereignty folks believed this was an issue that could be voted away, and then those from the South, who were slaveholders, as well as some people from the North, too, um, believed that slavery needed to be allowed to persist. It was a states' rights issue. It was also, in their words, a moral issue. Very hard for us nowadays to even, I think, imagine that there were those who would argue that slavery was a morally wholesome and even necessary institution. Whether or not they believed that in between their own ears, there were certainly folks who did publicly profess such a stance. And that's the background thereby which the meeting in 1854 took place. And the formation of the Republican Party is one of these extremely important events in American history that has been remembered collectively in a variety of ways, um, some not so uh, serious, for example. Uh, the town of Racine, Wisconsin, also had one of the very first meetings of the organization of the party that became known as the Republicans, and they claimed themselves to be the home of the Republican Party, just as Jackson, Michigan does, as the organization there that took place in 1854. 
Some of the historical memory of the Republican Party, of course, is much more serious because it is tied so deeply into this absolutely cataclysmic event that eventually happens in the United States, and that would be the Civil War. Austin Blair, then, features prominently in national Republican Party politics, and of course state Republican Party politics, statewide leadership, national leadership, from really that point in 1854 on, when he begins his prominent role in the formation of the National Republican Party. And that's where we're going to leave off with this episode. Next episode of Land Stories, we will pick up here with our story of Austin Blair, and we are going to examine what happens next, not only in the formation of the Republican Party, but, of course, in Austin Blair's life. And as it turns out, that statue that stands in front of the Michigan Capitol building that we begin our exploration of Blair with at the beginning of this episode has quite the story to tell behind the man it depicts. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories. Sharing the voices of Lansing Community College. Visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. With the holidays around the corner, Lansing Community College's Lifelong Learning Adult Enrichment Program is pleased to present a beginner's guide to gift wrapping, a free event that is open to the public and will teach you how to add that extra merry and bright to your gifts. All wrapping supplies are free and will be provided, taking place at LCC's East Campus on November 30th. To find out more, please visit us at lcc.edu slash keeplearning. That's lcc.edu slash keeplearning. To assist people struggling with addiction and to reduce drug demand, the Michigan State Police has joined with numerous police departments nationwide in the ANGEL program, a pre-arrest diversion program. The ANGEL program allows someone with a drug addiction to walk into a state police post in order to seek help for their addiction without the fear of arrest or investigation. All Michigan State Police posts are currently running the ANGEL program throughout the state and also have many local and county law enforcement partnerships in this initiative. To date, the ANGEL program has helped dozens of people who have presented themselves to the MSP or to another supporting law enforcement agency to start their short or long-term medical treatment plan. If you're interested in learning more about this program, either as a recipient or as a volunteer, you can find out more by calling 517-284-3208. That's 517-284-3208.
Lansing Community College welcomes transfer students. Transfer students may apply transfer credits towards their LCC degree, certificate, or transfer program. Learn more at lcc.edu slash you belong. Hi, I'm Melissa Kaplan, and I host a show called Galaxy Forum on LCC Connect. It's all about the creativity in our classrooms and on campus here at LCC and the connections we have with the community. You can catch Galaxy Forum here on LCC Connect or listen anytime at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Hey, hey, hey. This is Lisa A., and you're listening to Who's That Star on LCC Connect at Lansing Community College. Who's That Star is a behind-the-scenes show where I sit down and talk with the employees at the college. This is an inside look at LCC where you will have a chance to learn about their passions, projects, what inspires them both at work and in their personal lives. I'm your host, Lisa Alexander. I'm so excited to get a chance to talk to all the people who make LCC great. This show is for you to get to know the people that work at Lansing Community College a little bit more and see what makes them tick. Are you ready? Okay, let's go see who's today's star. Our star today began her career as an adjunct professor here at LCC as well as two other institutions about 10 years ago. She's been a public school educator for 25 years. 23 of those years, she was at the K-12 level. She was hired to be a full-time instructor at LCC in August of 2020 and has worked for LCC exclusively (laughs) since then. She believes that her responsibility as an educator is to simply find a way to connect with whomever shows up, and I love that. Outside of the classroom, this star performs regularly as a comedian, a storyteller, and was featured on a TEDx speaker in 2015, which I'm going to ask more about. She has a dog named Eleanor Roosevelt, and they live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Are you ready to learn more about today's star? Today's star is Catherine Palomino. Welcome, Catherine. Hello. Thank you. It's nice to be here, Lisa. Thanks. So, Catherine, do you prefer something else beside Catherine? Yes. My friends and my family call me Katie. All right, Katie. Great. I'm so glad to have you here on Who's That Star. So we're going to get started, okay? Great. So tell me about your work at LCC. What do you do? I was being really, you know, I didn't want to let them know, but. Sure. Yes. Um, So I am starting my third year as a full-time communication professor. Um, I also just completed my first full year as the program faculty chair okay. uh, for the communication program as well. Oh, so, wonderful. Yeah. Good. Now I know I got an inside scoop to <laughs> if I need something yes, over there. That's right. Okay. So how did you get started at LCC? Um, I had a long-term goal of teaching at the college level mm-hmm. and specifically went back to school to get a degree in communication so that I could teach at the college level. Long term, I wanted to work full time at the community college and worked as an adjunct at a couple of different places. And when the opportunity arose for me to work as an adjunct here, 
within that first semester of working as an adjunct, I was told by the program, the communication program, that there was a job that was going to be posted for a full-time instructor and that I should apply for it. It's wow. always a good sign when they tell you to apply exactly, for it. Exactly, it is. It so is. it was a, a perfect opportunity for me to leave the teaching I had done previously and come over to LCC um, before the pandemic really set in. Right. Um, some of my friends joke and say, did you have a crystal ball to get out of K-12 <laughs> before the pandemic? Exactly. So that is um, when I started full-time here and haven't looked back. When you were at K-12, through what, what age group did you teach? Um, I started off teaching 10th graders. Oh. And then I finished with 11th and 12th graders. Okay, yeah, so. you stayed in the high school yes. area. I worked at K-12, through and I did elementary, middle school, okay. and high school. And, yeah, I enjoyed high school the sure, most out sure. of all of them. I, I have even more empathy for my colleagues in the K-12 than I ever did um, as, a, as a result of the pandemic and oh, yeah. how hard the job has been for them. For sure it has been. I know my daughter, just the instructors have been great in K-12 in regards to trying to make sure they took care of the mental health of our students too. So I Absolutely. appreciate that. Sure. So what do you teach here at LCC? Um, I predominantly teach public speaking. Well, no wonder. Okay. Yes. And uh, usually the response I get from anybody when I tell them that I teach communication and specifically public speaking is, I'm terrified of public speaking. Well, yeah, I am. I faked a, I was going to fake a heart attack to get out of <laughs> right. doing public speaking. So it is, it's one of those things, but I'm always referring students to that class because it's a good transferable yes. class. Yes. But also the skills that you learn there is it, so wonderful and you need them in all aspects of your life, right? Absolutely. You, you're going to speak somewhere, even Absolutely. though you don't want to. So Absolutely. I love that. Yeah. I did not know it was the um, the Communications 130 that you speak. Oh, yeah. So. That's mostly what I teach. I also teach um, Dynamics of Communication, which is kind of an intro um, kind of a sampler platter of, of calm issues. Uh, those are the two classes that I predominantly teach. You know, um, I will tell you, um, Jerry Seinfeld has a joke about public speaking, and this is true. He says, you know, statistics show that people are more afraid of dying, or, excuse me, of public speaking than they are of dying. Yeah. And he said, so if you're at a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than the one giving the eulogy. <laughs> That's so true. Right? Because, yes, I, I yeah, the fear mm -hmm. of that and. Did you have, well, no, I mean, did you have a problem mastering that? Like, to be able to 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 have that as your profession, if sure. you're teaching people to do that, did you ever have a problem with speaking? Um, this is what I usually tell people. I didn't know that I was good at speaking, that it was a craft and a gift. I mean, I knew that I could talk uh, since I was a little kid, very early talking all the time, and I haven't stopped talking since I learned how, but... When it comes to the art of actually public speaking or using my voice or using persuasive techniques or organizing my thoughts, I did not know I was good at it until I realized that most everybody else is not good. Right. At it. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then, you know, I was like, give me the microphone. I'll do it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Sure, you have, I'll give it, a presentation. That's right. wonderful. Yeah. And I think you can... You can reach so many people if you're just yourself and comfortable. Absolutely. But it's like, 
I just feel like, oh my gosh, yeah. everybody's looking at me. Right. Do you tell them to imagine people naked? Is no. That, in you, fact, I bring that up and say, I don't know whoever came up with that, but that would make me more nervous. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, we we do an activity in the Com 130 class, the public speaking class, that is uh, addressing your fears, okay. and I have them just flat out say, "What is it that is so terrifying?" And the list, you know, ranges from everybody staring at me to I'm going to mess up, I'm going to mispronounce something, I'm going to turn red while I'm talking, mm-hmm. I'm going to lose my place, I'm going to stutter on my words. And those are all legit things to worry about. But once we acknowledge those things and recognize everybody has some anxiety when they speak, and and it can be a good uh, burst of adrenaline, that anxiety can be once it's mastered. But I I just tell them to own those fears and realize as a human being, you're going to make a mistake. Um, How you respond to that mistake is what makes you an effective speaker. Man, okay, those <laughs> that's the great words right there, Thank you know, you. because we everyone thinks that they have to be perfect, and I'm learning that you know, not that we are not that we don't are perfect, but that you're gonna make mistakes, sure. and when you talk, that's the human piece Correct. of you, you know, and Correct. you don't want to sound like a robot and stuff. So right. I'm I'm glad that oh now I have a friend absolutely who is um a speech teacher who can yep. give me some insight. Absolutely, well, that's absolutely. wonderful. Um, I um I often tell my students use an analogy. My uh, uh, therapist that I go through go to for mental health has told me. You're never not going to have anxiety, but you're going to learn tools to manage that anxiety. And I use that same example with my students when it comes to fear of public speaking. You're you're always going to have anxiety. You're always going to be a little bit nervous. Those are good things. But how to manage that Mm -hmm. anxiety is what our goal is. And just honestly, public speaking and speech class, but I always tell them this class is about building your confidence and, and, and empowering you to know that you are an expert on something. Right. And you are the one that can share that with us in the form of talking about it. Wow. You you got me wanting to take this class again. There you go. Katie. I, might, I have to. Think I would love about to have that. you in class. <laughs> I'm thinking about this now. Well, it definitely sounds like you have a. Um, you're passionate about your role here mm-hmm. at LCC, and we're glad to ha- have you. you. But what's life like for you outside of LCC? Sure. Um, well, Linked to LCC, I am a huge advocate for practicing my craft. Mm-hmm. Um, my uh, experience teaching at a four-year university for a few years was that a lot of students felt like a lot of the instructors and professors were a bit out of touch with the real world. Right. Um, and we've all had that experience, someone who wrote literally wrote the textbook but but can't communicate it to us and also has no idea what it's like to actually work in advertising or work in a a nurse's office. And so I am constantly pursuing and asserting myself to find situations and opportunities where I can practice my craft. I do a lot of hosting and emceeing events. Mm. Um, I uh, have given a lot of keynote speaker talks for different events. I market myself as someone who can lead those kind of events. Um, so I, I, I try to do as much of that as I can so that I, my students know that I'm also not just telling them what to do, but I'm actually learning that still as, as well. So, um, when I'm not actually teaching, um, I have two other gigs. I always have a side hustle. Yeah. I'm excited to hear about that. Right. So, um, I 
always have stuff to do and I like having things to do, especially in the summertime. But mm -hmm. um, when I started working at LCC, uh, simultaneously, I was given an opportunity um, to serve as a communication consultant. I was hired as a private contractor for a nonprofit organization in Grand Rapids, which oh, okay. I'm going to talk about a little bit more um, when it comes to volunteering. Yeah, I want to talk about a little bit later, but um, I spend a couple of days a week there when I'm not on campus here, and I edit and evaluate the documentations that go out on the website, uh, the information they send home to volunteers. Wow. I host a lot of events for volunteers, fundraisers, and organize the events for those, and just am a fresh pair of eyes from a communication perspective wow. for uh, this nonprofit. So That's wonderful. Yeah, I love it. I And I'm grateful for the opportunity to get to do both things right now. Yeah, but I mean, because I wasn't thinking that that's what you were going to tell me. Because oh, really? I was, you know, wanted to ask you about the being a comedian. Sure, sure, sure. And so I thought that was you going to bring it up. But this was a whole different thing that, right. you know, but it's a way to give back. Use Absolutely. your skill set, but still keep yourself fresh. Absolutely. On top of Absolutely. everything. So that's wonderful. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, okay. Well, as, as far as comedy goes... Um, I started in about 2014, and I was really, really intensely involved doing a lot of open mics, doing a lot of events. I performed a lot all over town here in, in Lansing, okay. as well as Grand Rapids, as well as Kalamazoo. And then I kind of grew kind of quickly. And I always tell people, everyone thought I was more experienced as a comedian than I actually was. Uh-huh. Because my presentation skills yeah. make it seem like I know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, you do, though. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I think the material that I covered in my comedy was good, but I also uh, uh, have become very critical of watching other comedians and think, you're so focused or we're so focused as speakers or comedians on the content mm -hmm. that we forget how important the actual skill of presenting it is. Yes. And so I can see really good uh comedy writing but terrible presentation skills you know i was watching um dave Chappelle. sure he what was <laughs> the guy's name um the news show john stewart oh john stewart sure he got an award and i was just listening to dave Chappelle, and it brings me back to how a person tells a story mm -hmm. And, and the information, how they give it to you mm -hmm. is just as important Absolutely. as the, the punchline or what they're given. And I think, you know, you hit, you hit it right when you said that you have to present a specific way or your way. Correct. So that it comes across that we can understand you. Yes. But it's also funny. So. Are you still doing it? Are you still? You know what? Um, so just before the pandemic, the uh, the last, I don't know, maybe even a year before the pandemic, I wasn't doing as much direct comedy shows. Mm -hmm. uh, the ones that I was doing at the time were more fundraisers. I had friends that, like my friend's uh, son's Little League baseball team, the parents wanted to raise money for the season. And so the parents hosted a fundraiser and I was the event. I was the entertainment. Oh, we, oh wow. So that was really fun. I did one for a basketball uh, fundraiser at a local school in Grand Rapids as well. Yeah. And uh, for uh, a program of occupational therapy for a friend who runs that program at Western Michigan, her students had a fundraiser and they invited me and I produced a show, performed, and then hired a couple of other comedians. So that that, just like anything, that was more fun because I got to pick who I performed with mm -hmm. as opposed to just like you see in movies and TV doing open mic with a bunch of people who are, who are telling the same kinds of jokes because right. they're all about 
18 to 25 years old (laughs) and boys, um, (laughs) it gets, it's a unique voice to be a person at my age and a female. Right. Yeah. So So you're not seeing many women comedians. Um, yes, but not nearly as much as every 21 year old guy who thinks he's hilarious because his friends think he's hilarious. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right. So I, I haven't done as much I've done. I I did do a a happy hour event online during the pandemic for an organization for a, a, um, like a a staff outing. They had me come, it was online because everybody's working from home. So that was a unique experience. I have not performed face to face since um, we've been a little more um, relaxed yeah. about things. Mm-hmm. And I just was telling some folks today that I need to write some new material because so much has happened um, oh. that I, I have lots to say about I the bet. last couple of years. <laughs> you definitely so. <laughs> would have a lot to say. Well, you got to let us know. Absolutely. So we can let people know to come check you out. Absolutely. I, I would definitely um, come, Thank you, you know, and that on the, on that note, you have such a great voice. You Thank sound you. so well, Thank you. you know, you should think about doing something for LCC connect. I should do something. So I, I think you need to join our family. <laughs> so I'm going to throw you. that out there. Thank you. But, um, I also wanted to ask you, uh, how did you do a TEDx and what is a TEDx? Sure. Well, um, for about six years, I was an adjunct communication professor at Grand Valley State University over in Allendale, just north of Grand Rapids. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, one of the students in my class, my speech class, was on the Student Senate, and they were hosting a TEDx event. So everybody, in most cases, has heard of a TED Talk, Mm -hmm. and TEDx is a local version of TED Talks. Oh, okay. So the X simply means it's somewhere other than on a national scale gotcha. or, okay. uh, or global scale. So this was uh, TEDx at GVSU. Oh, wow. And they invited people to be guest speakers. And one of my students, of course, had had my class. And she said, you would be perfect. Is this something you would be interested in doing? And I was like, absolutely. What absolutely. did you, what did you do your talk? What I talk about? Um, I talked about the concept of uh, back to basics. Um, at the time, it's it's kind of ironic these years later, uh, what, five or six years later, I talked about how to regain passion for the work that you love and being burnt out. And specifically at that time, right, <laughs> I had um, 20... Two years in as a public school teacher, mm-hmm. and I identified different ways that I found myself not caring mm-hmm. and navigating through landmines and checking the box of what I have to do. Exactly. And I, I know there are lots of people who function like that in all kinds of work, but I decided either I was going to better myself mm-hmm. and change that attitude and reframe what I was doing there as an educator or I had to find another job because I wasn't benefiting anyone being there. And so that was what my talk was about. Just highlighting a couple of things that people can do to regain the zest. And, and, and a lot of it focused around the idea of overcommitting and feel like feeling like we have to be involved in everything. Uh, one of the things I talked about was um, be your best, not your better than. And uh, we get in a habit of comparing ourselves to other people, no matter where we work. Mm-hmm. Uh, we keep track of who shows up to things. We keep, <laughs> keep track of who talks in the meeting and who doesn't. Right. And those are essentially comparables. And so recognizing, hey, I'm giving my best. It's not about what he or she does. It's about what I do. 
So it was a really cool, really cool, excuse me, opportunity. And uh, I was really thankful. And that that is on YouTube. If you look on YouTube. I'm about to go watch yeah. it. Uh, Katie Palomino, uh, GVSU or TEDx, you'll find it. Yes, yeah. I'm definitely going to look because, Thank you. you know, you need some time to refill. You yeah. know, get you need something to help you get through it. And, and a lot of times when you're going through rough spots, right. you are just checking boxes sometimes. Yep. Yep. And so you have to check yourself. Right. And so I think that's a good reminder a lot yeah. of times. And yeah. So I appreciate that. Well, we, we've all encountered people. And unfortunately, in education, especially that person who says oh, three more years and I can retire, which I never appreciate because that is what you're looking forward to. And I'm not saying that retirement isn't something to look forward to, but when that's the first thing that you tell me when I meet you, then that shows me where your focus is. Exactly. And I I didn't want to be that person Mm -hmm. um, because it just wasn't doing anything for me or for my students. Right. Wow. I'm just loving this today. Thank you. So (laughs) before we get, I go down to any other rabbit holes, I do want to ask you about the volunteering that you do. Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So I uh, mentioned that I work for a nonprofit Mm -hmm. in Grand Rapids. The nonprofit that I work for is called Kids Food Basket. Um, A lot of people in West Michigan um, have heard of Kids Food Basket, but they don't necessarily know what our organization does. And I like to tell people that in, in, in some summary, what Kids Food Basket does is they provide a third meal of the day for students who get free and reduced lunch and breakfast at school. Gotcha. Um, And so the idea being that there are many students who are provided those meals during the day, but then they go home and have to fend for themselves Mm -hmm. uh, for a variety of reasons. And so Kids Food Basket every day packs up to 10,000 meals a day, a sack supper, That is a fresh, nutritious, ready-to-eat meal that we deliver with our volunteer drivers to different schools and different locations and give them to the kids that have signed up for those. Wow, that's wonderful. Right, right. That's a great way to give back. Absolutely. No, the babies aren't hungry, so that's a good thing. Yeah, and I I started, I got connected with the organization as a volunteer. Okay. And this is real briefly kind of a funny story. When I first started volunteering there, it was because I had two different students when I was teaching at Grand Rapids Community College who in their persuasive speech, two different semesters, two students who didn't know each other, who talked about why you should volunteer at Kids Food Basket. Wow. And I thought, what is this Kids Food Basket that I keep hearing about? Well, I had gone through a little bit of a rough patch a couple of years ago. And so to not be as focused on my sad and Mm -hmm. where I was, I used that energy to volunteer. Mm -hmm. And I volunteered at this organization. But once I was done doing that, and I got back on track with my mental health, I thought, I associate being sad with volunteering at this place. Now I need to volunteer when I'm in a better spirits and better mood. Right. And that just took off. We, um, Kids Food Basket, uses more volunteers, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> than any other organization in in Michigan. Wow. Yeah, maybe even nationally. I don't know all the statistics, but, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. Okay. But- for sure in Michigan, and hundreds and hundreds of volunteers every day to pack sack suppers, and uh, kidsfoodbasket.org is where people can get involved. It's a great opportunity for friends and families um, to work together and, and volunteer in the community. All right, you guys. Kids food, 
foodbasket.org. Dot org. You yep. guys heard that. Yes. We need to start one if there's not in this area. Right. Do one in this area. Exactly. That would be super cool. Exactly. Or have a college sponsor, you know. Something. Hey, you know, do something like that. You yes. never know. But that's great. Thank you. Uh, you are a busy lady. I am. I am. I like to have things going on, like I said. I know it's like you volunteer, you're doing TEDx yep. talks, you're doing <laughs> comedy, you're right. helping people get over their public speaking right. fear. Well, tell me something that you're really proud of and why. I feel like that it's only been in the last couple of years and when not intentionally, but related to now full-time teaching here at LCC, I spent most of my life and anybody that has the same experience as being a talker like I am, mm -hmm. I've spent most of my life being in trouble for talking too much. Gotcha. So I never knew that it was a gift because it was something I was always being told not to do. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I began to see the impact on students when they had a little burst of confidence as a result of taking a speech class or uh, coaching students through the mindset of, you know, what's something you could talk about forever? That should be your speech topic because you can go on and on about just seeing the students, it click with them and for them to realize those things. So what I'm proud about is public speaking is my superpower. It is. And it's something that comes very naturally to me. And so I'm proud of the opportunity to empower other people to realize they are also able and capable of giving a really good presentation or talk. Wow. I'm I'm going to have to end it off on this. Sure. I want to thank you today for coming. I've learned so much. I'm thank super you. excited. And um are you looking forward to fall semester to I am ready to go. I love a routine. So I'm ready to be back in the routine and I I love teaching comm classes. So uh I always encourage people in the community even to take comm classes and burst uh boost up their skills. All right. Well, you tell them who they are and who they can sign up for a public speaking class with. That's right. Com 130. Catherine Palomino. All right, Catherine. Katie. Katie. We are so glad you came here, and I I, I want to have you back. Thank you. I could talk to you all day, so I'm super. <laughs> well, as I told you, I also could talk all day. <laughs> right, so we, we're, <laughs> Thank good, you, Lisa. we're a good match. So you take care, and everybody, I will see you next week. You've been listening to Who's That Star? I'm Lisa A., and you can listen to this episode of Who's That Star and other shows from LCC Connect anytime online at lccconnect.org. Thank you for listening. Catch me next time to find out who's that star. Keep connected with LCC Connect at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Michigan residents age 25 or older may qualify for Michigan ReConnect, a program providing free or reduced tuition to students who have not earned a prior college degree. ReConnect students are responsible for books and fees. Visit lcc.edu reconnect for more information. Lansing Community College students now have the option to go beyond an associate degree through LCC's University Center 
The University Center is a partnership between LCC and five four-year universities. Located on LCC's downtown campus, these universities offer junior and senior level courses, leading to more than 30 bachelor's degrees, several post-baccalaureate certificates, and options to obtain a master's degree. Current and former LCC students can take advantage of the convenient location at the corner of Capitol Avenue and Shiawassee Street on LCC's downtown campus. Find out more about the University Center, visit lcc.edu. This is WLNZ Lansing. You're listening to LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. To find out more about LCC Connect programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision.